who do you think you serve? How I well re remember the rebuke John Gerstner dealt to me, my great teacher, when he walked in and heard me preach, and I was shaking in my boots. And when he called me afterwards to comment on the sermon, I commented that he gave me nervous fits, to which he screamed into the phone, What's the matter with you, Dennison? I'm a worm! I'm a worm! And you stand before the living God every Sunday. What are you worried about me for? Yeah. What am I worried about him for? I should be more concerned with what my Lord Jesus says. Or as Spurgeon said to the little old lady that came down to congratulate him, Dr. Sermon, Dr. Spurgeon, that was a wonderful sermon, and Spurgeon looked her in the eye and said, yeah, the devil told me the very same thing after I came down out of the pulpit. Now, I'm not minimizing commendations, but when you make your commendations, let's get rid of this throwaway, that was a nice sermon, that was a good message. Let's say something that means something, something that hits you. As the girl came to me yesterday with tears in her eyes and said, you left me with Jesus. Praise God. Exactly. Exactly. Jesus. This is not a matter of pastoral aesthetics. This is not a discussion of a theoretical model for biblical ministry. This is not a portrait of a glorious, redemptive, historical paradigm painted only to be abandoned when one steps behind a pulpit, when one sits across a counseling table, when one presides over a session meeting, one sits in a hospital room holding the hand of a dying saint. If you think that I've been presenting theoretical lectures, you have not begun to understand the gospel. Forget me. The gospel. If this is aesthetics, because we want to have mellifluous speeches and ornate liturgies and nice superstructured models then let it burn. It's wood, hay, and stubble, if not worse. Aesthetic, biblical, theological models are vacuous. Theoretical, redemptive, historical paradigms may draw oohs and ahs, but without semi-eschatological realization in the life of the church, they remain theories, empty paradigms, unactualized speculations. If it's only theory, then I'm going to be the one that's calling for application. Application of Christ-centered, soteriological, eschatological, biblical theological material to the hearts, lives, and souls of the needy, hungry, thirsty saints of God who are weary Sunday after Sunday and come to be fed from the bread of heaven. The call to the pastorate is the call to mimesis, the call to mirror the eschatological pastor, the call to transformation by a person, not a theory, the call to union with a living person, not an aesthetic paradigm, the call to participation in a semi-eschatological drama, 
heaven originated, heaven oriented, not the call to imperial office, political chicanery, bureaucratic tyranny. After all, the people to whom you are preaching Sunday after Sunday, you hope by their profession are going to go to heaven. Then preach to them like they're going to heaven. Or at least that you believe that they may be going there. This high and holy pastoral calling, mimesis, semi-eschatological participation is motivated by love. Simon, son of John, do you love me? The emotional center of the pastoral role is love for Jesus. Not, notice, love for the sheep, though you cannot love Jesus without loving his sheep, but the chief affection of the New Testament pastor is love for Jesus. Love for the risen Jesus. Resurrection love for the resurrected Jesus. Love newborn by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Love new created by the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so, mimesis, resurrection, love, mirrored in love of the sheep, raised up together with Christ Jesus. Mimesis, newborn love, mirrored in love for the lambs who have been raised up together with Christ Jesus. Mimesis, new creation love, mirrored in love for the sheep who have been raised up together with Christ Jesus. Mimesis, the love of Christ for his sheep, mirrored in love for Christ's sheep. Peter's encounter with the post-resurrection Christ at the Sea of Tiberias is a mimetic encounter. He has been restored. Three denials, chapter 18, three poignant declarations of his love for Christ, chapter 21. He has been commissioned. Three imperatives inseparably united to the indicative of the resurrection. He has been loved. Three declarations of Christ's love for him. Oh, you say that's not in the text? Oh, but it is. Yes, it is. Mimesis. Jesus asks of love because his love is mirrored in the very question. Simon, son of John, I love you. Do you love me? Mimesis. Yes, Lord. You know I love you. No, Peter doesn't love Christ perfectly. Peter doesn't love Christ as he hopes to. But Peter confesses, Lord, I love you. And that, that is sufficient. Lord, I love you. 
mimesis. Feed my sheep whom I love. No one in this room loves Jesus Christ perfectly, nor does anyone in this room love the Lord Jesus Christ as they one day hope to. But anyone in this room who loves the Lord Jesus loves him because the Lord Jesus first loved you. John 21 is a display of the affection, the emotion, the passion Jesus has for his lambs, his sheep, his flock, whom he loves. Let this resurrection love fill your soul. Let this heavenly passion flood your being. Let this eschatological affection possess you until the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, seats you perfectly in his love, carries you gently to his very bosom in his love, tenderly embraces you and holds fast to you in his love forever and ever and ever. Now I want to fill in the outline for you and then I will uh, take some questions. But as you're uh, gathering those sheets in preparation for filling in the blanks, These lectures on the Gospel of John will be available during the KRUKS conference, which begins on May 11th, and again, you are all welcome to attend. There will be one free set of those tapes of these lectures per household that audited this course in person. So each household represented here is entitled to one free set of those tapes. The tapes will be sold for $150 per set for everyone else. Now, as has been pointed out to me, that's only $7.14 a chapter. And you'll notice we're not even charging for the 11 verses of chapter 8. Now, there's a sign-up sheet back there uh, on the counter, so you're welcome to sign up as you're entitled to a free set per household. And if you would like to have sets to distribute, then understand uh, that there'll be $150 per set beyond that. I want to thank Tony Hamstra, our Director of Development, for being here each week and for taking care of this taping, and each of you owes him a debt of thanks for his uh, commitment to this uh, project, as well as uh, I thank all of you for your consistency and for your attention, your questions, and your interest. As an additional note, with respect to the seminary, uh, we have 
the flashiest, most beautiful website in the seminary world now. And if uh, you haven't seen it today, then you need to look at it. It is gorgeous. So go out to nwts.edu and look at that beautiful website which has just been mounted for this uh, feeble little seminary who has so many devoted and loyal servants. Thank God for every one of them. Now, to fill in the blanks with respect to John 21, beginning with the Dramatis Personae, I will only point out some of the verses, but uh, beside Nathaniel, the first is 145 and the second is 21.2. For Simon, son of Jonas, or son of John, the first is 142, second, 21, 15, 16, and 17. The sons of Zebedee, you know the blanks underneath that, James and John. And then the verses... 137 and 21.2. Now, the symmetry in vocabulary. Adam pointed out the akaluthai, akaluthai, uh, imperative, follow me, occurs in chapter 143, chapter 21, verses 19 and 22. One that I did not mention, the amen, amen, truly, truly, in chapter 1, verse 51, in chapter 21, verse 18. The verb menane, to remain, stay, or abide, chapter 1, 38, 39, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Now, with respect to theme, there's a dual symmetrical theme. Number one, the call of the disciples in chapter 1. Number two, the commissioning of the disciples in John 21. Then there's a symmetrical biblical theological shift. Number one, in chapter one, the baptism and public appearance of Christ, which is the call of the new Israel in Christ, that is the calling of the disciples, and the phrase, come and see. Number two, chapter 21, the resurrection and insufflation, that is, they have been filled by the Spirit, the reconstitution and commissioning of the new Israel. They are reconstituted after the discouragement of the crucifixion. They have had the breath of new life put upon them, and now they are commissioned as the new Israel, go and feed. Now, the Christological titles, you will notice that there are eight parallel slots. The first is the title, He Who Comes, chapter 1, verse 27, and it is parallel to the term Lord, 21-7. In fact, Lord will be the same word on the right-hand column all the way down in the eight slots. The second Christological title in chapter 1 is Lamb of God. Chapter 1, verses 29 and 36. And Lord, again, in 21.7. Kyrios occurs twice in chapter 21, verse 7. 
The third Christological title in chapter 1 is Son of God, 1, 34 and 49, parallel to Lord, 21, 12. The next Christological title is Rabbi, in chapter 1, 38 and 49, parallel to Lord in 21, 15. The next Christological title is Christ or Messiah, 141, again, Lord, 2116. The next Christological title in chapter 1, The Prophet, chapter 1, verse 45, the eschatological prophet of Deuteronomy 18, and Lord in 2117. And then Nathaniel's confession, King of Israel, chapter 149, Parallel with Lord, 2120. And finally, the ladder of ascent and descent. Son of Man, chapter 151, and Lord in 2121. Is there a structural clue? Yes, verse 1 and verse 14 under the scene structure, the blank beside verse 1 and verse 14, contain the word manifested. In fact, they contain the name Jesus plus the term manifested, the same Greek root. Then the subscene A, the fishing excursion at and on the Sea of Tiberias, verses 2 to 8. And B, the fish feast on the shore, on the land, verses 9 to 13. Now, there is an inclusio in each of those units. Verse 2, the phrase, other disciples, occurs. And in verse 8, other disciples also occurs. In verse 9, the terms fish and bread occur. Again, in verse 13, fish and bread occur. These narrative units are distinguished by duplicate vocabulary. Now, scene 2, chapter 21, verses 15 to 23. A, with Peter, about Peter, verses 15 to 19. B, with Peter, about the beloved disciple, Verses 19 to 23. Then, the gap with the line in verse 15. Simon, dot, 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 love, dot, 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 Lord. Verse 17, Simon, dot, 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 love, dot, 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 Lord. Verse 19, follow me. Verse 22, follow me. But you have another parameter there which underscores what I emphasize about the fact that chapter 21 of John's Gospel, conclusion is open to the future. Verse 18 is a future reference, as is verse 23. So the Gospel is projecting the church and the life of the disciples beyond the end of itself. Do you need me to break? Now, I've suggested another structural pattern with a question mark. 
a potential chiasm that ties together the thematic statement of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, with the concluding thematic statement of chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. It's interesting that we have, again, similar vocabulary. In fact, we have parallel vocabulary in 20, 30, and 21, 25. Pola, kai, Allah. Can you pull that one off, Adam? Pola, kai, Allah. Many, also, other. Okay? Many, also, other. And then in chapter 21, 25, kai, Allah, pola, also, other, many. In other words, those very same three Greek words appear in 20, 30, and 21, 25. Inside, in 20, 30, and 31, and in 21, 24, and 25, a series of phrases describing what has been written in both of those units. Verse chapter 20, which are not written, but these have been written. Chapter 21, wrote these things, were written, which if they were written, Notice the end of chapter of verse 25, right. And so we have in this arrangement a kind of potential chiastic pattern bracketing the ending of chapter 20 with the ending of chapter 21, which would squeeze at the center of the chiasm 21, 1 to 23. In other words, bracketed around many other things which could have been written, is this central drama between Christ and the disciples, Christ and Peter, Christ and the beloved disciple. Now, I'm only tentative and suggesting that. I am not arguing dogmatically for it. Uh, however, I want to point it out as a way of, of uh, hanging the integrity of 20 and 21 more tightly together. All right, now, are, are there any parts of the outline that you didn't get that I need to repeat? All right, then, uh, if not, then I'll be glad to take some questions. David? Can you add further support to your Okay, the question is, or the observation is, can we make 20 and 21 analeptic? That is, it refers back to chapter 1. Yes, I think so. And in my initial lectures on the prologue and on the first chapter, I suggested it is pointing ahead to the thematic statement of the gospel as a whole. So that would be reinforcing itself. I would want to look for vocabulary duplications if I was going to try to further uh, make, make that further concrete. David? Um, my question is about uh, the elevation of Peter. Um, the Catholics say that the Pope's infallible. And I wonder how that squares with the fact that uh, the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter. Uh, first, and then the second is. 
where in scripture is there any indication that uh, his office or the character of his office devolved to anybody in time? Okay, the question is, uh, reflecting out of Christ's comments here in 21, uh, what do we say about the infallibility of the uh, Apostle Peter and the infallibility of the Pope uh, in the face of uh, Paul's rebuke of Peter uh, in uh, Galatians, etc.? Well, it doesn't square at all. And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church uh, didn't come to that conclusion until 1870 with Vatican I when they declared uh, the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope and uh, through the conciliar movement in the Middle Ages, there was a huge battle, even within the Roman Catholic Church, over whether a council was above a pope or a pope was above a council. So there's enough contradictory testimony from within their own history to uh, suggest that that's a doctrine of men and not a doctrine of the Word of God. Um, your other question was about, uh, remind me what that second one was, David. Yes. Is there anything... Is there anything in the New Testament that suggests that the office that Peter has uh, is to put him above anyone else in the apostolic band? And no, there's not. Uh, uh, in spite of their interpretation of Matthew 16:16, 16, 16, the confession of Caesarea Philippi, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock I will build my church. The rock is not the person, the rock is the confession. And that's been the traditional Protestant interpretation of that passage, and I think it's justified not only by the context, but also by uh, the demeanor of Peter himself. When you read the two epistles of Peter in the New Testament, you're reading about an apostle who sees himself in relationship to others, not as a uh, dominating uh, authoritative figure, but as a under-shepherd of the chief shepherd of the sheep. In fact, that's imagery that he uses. It is as if this transformation in John 21 has done its work. And Peter, from then on, is a different man. He's a different human being. He, it is not as if that he has become perfect, but in his epistles you see the mature apostle Peter. You see Peter as the uh, acme of servanthood. Uh, that's incompatibility with, that's incompatible with the, the supreme vicar of Christ upon the earth. David? Three Davids. <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, do you see anything significant beyond, beyond like a mere stylistic issue with regard to the employment of the philio agapao, you know, uh, word for love? Yes, the question is, do I see uh, anything beyond the stylistic with a variation in the vocabulary for love in uh, verses 15 to 17 of chapter 21? Uh, I do not. Uh, I've worked on this, and I don't see anything. Uh, Ling has worked on this a little bit, so you might pick her brain. Uh, but I don't think, uh, as, my, I, as I recall last talking to her about this, that there is any clear solution uh, from a theological point of view about the variation in the vocabulary, but I wouldn't give up continuing to look for something. But right now, I don't think there is. Ling wants to make her comment. I can find that. 
All right, because I haven't indexed the Warfield's work. The response was that B.B. Warfield has an extensive uh, article on that. Uh, actually, there's been a lot of work done in New Testament studies, Novum Testamentum, etc., particularly in the 60s and 70s on this passage, asking, uh, attempting to address the very same question you're raising, David. And in my opinion, those articles weren't successful either. The work by Warfield, I'm not aware of because it's not something I've come across, but I can get the reference for you. Yeah, Cheryl? Okay, the question is, why do they think chapter 21 was added later? Because most critics, most liberal fundamentalists, and fundamentalism occurs on the left as well as the right, most liberal uh, fundamental critics believe that chapter 30, uh, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 21 are the end, the exclamation point for the end of the gospel. And therefore, they read 21 as an appendix or an, ad- an addition. They say he had stated his purpose, he'd come to the conclusion, he put his pen down, somebody came along and tacked on an extra chapter. No, you wouldn't come up with that uh, theory, you wouldn't come up with that supposition unless it were suggested to you because you read this as a harmonious, seamless narrative. Uh, But now that the critics have challenged it, one has to justify that, which is the reason I took time to attempt to justify it. But that's the reason they reject it. And that's standard uh, critical... Uh, protocol. In other words, uh, we're, uh, I'm definitely the minority on this question. When you, when you survey the whole uh, slew of uh, New Testament commentators and New Testament critics, I'm definitely in the minority with other conservatives. Okay, uh, David again. Yes, the, the question is, when Jesus says, my father is greater than I, uh, it, it's not an, a, 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 a compromise of his ontic deity, but it's a reference to his submission to undertake the plan of redemption. And I think that's an accurate way of considering that, that verse, yes. David? In other words, it's an economic distinction, not an ontological distinction. David? Um, the question is, is there a connection between uh, John 21, verse 18, and uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 13? Is that it, David? Gird your minds for action.
Yeah, is Peter drawing on it? It is suggestive. Uh, I'm not sure I can say anything more than suggestive because I honestly don't know what John 21:18 means. Uh, it's a very difficult passage. Uh, the tradition of the church, even the early church, was that Peter was crucified upside down. I don't have any reason to deny that tradition, but I'm not sure that that has anything to do with this particular verse. So I have, uh, as you know, I kind of uh, lightly sidestepped uh, these verses because uh, uh, I still have things to learn myself. But your comment about the use of the same Greek word would suggest an allusion, would suggest a suggestive allusion. That's all more I could say about it at this point myself. I have one final postscript then. These lectures have been a biblical theological treatment of the inspired gospel of John. I have attempted to unfold the meaning of the chapters Christologically, soteriologically, eschatologically. It has been my prayer that the words of this gospel, the story of this gospel, have become richer, more precious, more poignant to you and that by virtue of your union with Christ, you have found his story your own from chapter 1 to chapter 21. In the course of these lectures, I have also considered traditional Orthodox and Reformed doctrines as they have arisen from the text. The person of Christ as ontological Son of God. The doctrine of the Trinity as economic or as a redemptive historical manifestation as well as a metaphysical relation. The concept of election or predestination rooted in the will of the triune God. The drama of regeneration as a transformation, a rebirth anothen from heaven. The doctrine of the church as the gathering of those confessing the Lamb of God. The doctrine of eschatology as the resurrection from the dead, the experience of final judgment, the glorification of the flesh, the doctrine of the Christian life, as one in fellowship with the Spirit of the risen Christ, Son of the Father, the life of the believer as a life of love, love for Christ Jesus, love for keeping his commandments. In each case, with respect to these traditional Orthodox and Reformed doctrines, it has been my goal to deepen, to magnify, to strengthen, to enrich these traditional emphases. These traditional Orthodox and Reformed emphases are summed up in the Reformed confessions and catechisms. I am not conscious that in these lectures I have attacked, questioned, undermined, or in any other way displaced the teaching of these classic Reformed symbols. I have endeavored to be faithful to them while plumbing the depths of the unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus in John's Gospel. There is a popular conception, actually a popular misconception, that in pledging our loyalty to the Orthodox and Reformed confessions, that we are thereby reducing the Word of God. This popular misunderstanding flows from an admirable recognition of the supremacy of sola scriptura, I heartily concur in that acknowledgement. But the supreme infallibility of the Word of God does not automatically make the Orthodox and Reformed confessions suspect. 
While the confessions emphatically stand under the Word of God, nonetheless they are an attempt to set forth the teaching of the Word of God in summary paragraphs and catechetical questions and responses. That means that the aim of the Orthodox and Reformed confessions is not preemptive. They were not written in order to preempt the inspired scriptures. They were written to express in uninspired words what the inspired words of God teach. Our Orthodox and Reformed fathers composed their confessions and catechisms to be a careful commentary in summary form of the teaching of the Bible. They did not think that what they had composed was unfounded in the infallible word of God. And so they provided numerous citations of Scripture to support their sentences, questions, and answers. In our Presbyterian tradition, officers of the church, pastors, ruling elders, deacons, solemnly affirm before Almighty God and the ordaining court, be it congregation or presbytery, that they confess and they agree and they subscribe to the system of doctrine in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. That presumes that every Orthodox, Reformed, and Presbyterian minister, ruling elder, and deacon has voluntarily read, studied, and concurred with the teaching of the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, and before Almighty God as his witness and the assembly of the ordaining court has affirmed that this confession and catechism contain the teachings of the Word of God in summary system fashion. For any minister, elder, or deacon to affirm otherwise is presumptuous, if not outright duplicitous, whether intentional or unintentional. Therefore, it is a misunderstanding to suggest that the teaching of the confessions and catechisms may be contradicted, qualified, or set aside by the Word of God as if our understanding of the Reformed system of doctrine does not derive from our interpretation of the Word of God. We have, in these 13 weeks of lectures on the Gospel of John, not placed our interpretation of the Scriptures over against the Orthodox and Reformed confessional tradition. Rather, we have learned that our traditional Orthodox and Reformed confessional tradition has been wonderfully enriched, marvelously deepened, as the mind of God himself in Christ Jeep is deep, deep, very deep, powerfully strengthened by the biblical theological approach to the fourth gospel. We are more orthodox and reformed than ever because of our biblical theological approach. We are more orthodox and reformed than ever because of our Christological, our soteriological, our eschatological approach to John's gospel. We have not set our biblical theological approach over against the orthodox and reformed confessions. We have set our biblical theological approach at the feet of the orthodox and reformed confessions as a servant even as these Orthodox and Reformed confessions are placed at the feet of the inerrant Word of God. We love our Orthodox and Reformed confessional and catechetical tradition because we are persuaded that they have captured in summary form 
the system of teaching contained in the Holy Scriptures. And we have labored not to place our further study and exegesis of the Word of God over against that orthodox and reformed confessional and catechetical tradition, but rather to deepen and to enrich its own summaries with the height and depth, yea, the length and breadth of the word of life. I am not conscious that I have placed the biblical theological exposition of John's gospel in antithesis or tension with the orthodox and reformed confessions and catechisms. Rather, I am conscious that I have placed the biblical theological exposition of John's gospel in service and harmony with the orthodox and reformed confessions and catechisms. Sic sensio, sic doceo, sic credo, sic subscribo, amen. That's the end of John's Gospel.